The message today is going to be coming from the Gospel of John, chapter 2. John, chapter 2. And the title of my message today is A Time for Anger. A Time for Anger. What kind of things make you angry? You know, just this morning, I got really angry when I went into the bathroom and I stepped on those scales. <laughs> I get really mad at that thing. It just keeps telling me that I need to lose weight. But why am I mad at the scales? It could have been that peanut butter milkshake I had on Friday or the two slices of wedding cake I had last night. But I'm mad at the scales. What are the kinds of things that we get angry about? Well, I usually find that my anger is directed towards other people or other things and rarely toward myself. Every time I go to Walmart, I get so angry. (laughs) I drive in the parking lot and I can't find a place close enough because someone keeps leaving their carts in the parking spot. How hard is it to take the shopping cart and put it where it goes? Now, if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, then shame on you. How many of you get frustrated with that? Raise your hand. Yes, yes. So, what is the problem? I get angry about that. Every year, I get asked to, to donate money to this wonderful group of people who take the time to clean out the, the Guadalupe River. I'm told that at the end of the clean-out, they bring in actually tons of trash on our beautiful river. That makes me angry that people are so inconsiderate. Another thing people are inconsiderate about is drivers. I mean, when I get on Junction Highway, I'm a pretty safe driver. My wife will tell you that I drive like an old man. And then I look over and tell her, well, I am an old man. But I'm in the right-hand lane on Junction Highway, and I'm going 45 miles an hour, whatever the speed limit is. And someone just comes up right behind me and comes right around me and cuts right in front of me. Now, that's fine. If they want to pass me, that's fine. I have no problem. What I have a problem with is as soon as they get in front of me, they slam on their brakes and turn right. (laughs) Do you get angry about that? Today's text, John chapter 2. Chapter 2, we're going to see a time for anger for our Savior, Christ the Lord. I want to read these verses to you, and I have divided it up into five points that I want to make about these particular verses. So starting in chapter 2, verse 13, let's read to chapter uh, 13, verse 22. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, 
Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Well, I've divided this up, as I said, into five parts. And the first, the first part is the problem, followed by the passion, followed by the pushback, followed by the promise, and pro- followed by the proof. Five ways of remembering and thinking about this particular passage. So the first one is the problem. We see the problem in verses 13 and 14. Now, these are the very early days of Christ our Savior in his ministry, of his public ministry. And after the miracle that he performed at the wedding feast in Cana by changing the water into wine, he goes back to Capernaum, where his headquarters was, apparently. Capernaum is located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, we're also told that this was the time of the Passover, that the Passover was near. So Christ begins to make his way to Jerusalem. In fact, this was something that was required of all male Jewish boys of the age of 12 and up. So that's where he was going. But the Bible says, as we try to get into the text of what it's trying to say here, we have to notice, first of all, that he's going to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, for those of you who don't know very much about the Passover, I want to just a real quick review. So we'll all, we'll all be up to speed on what this is all about, the Passover. When Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel's family, was moved to uh, Egypt, there were probably about 70 family members. 430 years later, they're still there, and there's approximately 2 million of them. They have become a nation. Well, Pharaoh would not let his people go when Moses asked him to let the people go, and he refused to do that. And God, of course, we all know that sent many plagues, but he just would not do it. He would not let the people go. Finally, the very last plague that he sends was the death of the firstborn, firstborn male, the firstborn female, firstborn cattle. How many of you are the firstborn in your family? Me too. We're out of here. So as a way to protect his people, God said, this is what I want you to do. In each home, I want you to kill a lamb, a sacrificial, unblemished lamb, and I want you to roast it and eat it, all of it. And I want you to take the blood and I want you to put it on the lintels and the doorposts of the house that you're in. And when the death angel comes by later in the evening, you will be spared. Your life will be spared. No one in that home will die. The blood of that lamb is what protected and saved them. Do you see the connection between that lamb's blood and God's lamb of God's blood? The protection that he provides for us? How spiritually blind do you have to be not to see that? The Passover is also known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a festive time to remember when the children of Israel were let go from Egypt. We're told that Jesus left Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is actually, if you look at a map, It's actually north of Jerusalem, but the Bible says it went 
uh, up to Jerusalem. Well, the way we explain that is that uh, when he says he went down to Jerusalem, uh, the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, where Capernaum was, was about 700 feet below sea level. Sea level. And Jerusalem, at least at the, uh, uh, at the high point, uh, would be about 2,600 feet above sea level. So that's a 3,300-foot uh, distance in height that they were actually going up to Jerusalem. We're also told that Jesus went directly to the temple. Now, there had been two temples built. This was the second temple. The very first temple was built by Solomon back in about 960 B.C. It was a magnificent, absolutely beautiful building, facade, and, and just everything about it was absolutely glorious. Unfortunately, 400 years later, in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came in and totally destroyed the temple. That was the first temple. To please the Jews, in about 20 B.C., Herod the Great decided that he would rebuild the temple. Now, we do know that about 100 years after they got back from uh, Babylonia, that they did partially rebuild the temple, at least enough to worship God in. Well, because Herod wanted to please the Jews so much, he decided to enlarge it and to beautify it, and that's exactly what he did. He actually used 18,000 men to rebuild it. This particular uh, place of uh, the Lord, this uh, grandiose temple, uh, square footage-wise, including the outer uh, outer court, was 1,500,000 square feet, which covered approximately 35 acres. Well, there it is right there. You can see the outer court. 35 acres. That's, that's a lot. And there are also different levels of height in this temple. It was a massive, massive building. The large or, uh, outer court was the only place, the only place that Gentiles could go. The entire structure was to be considered holy ground. The, fur, the further in you went, the more exclusive it became. The first level was the court of the Gentiles. Then six feet higher was the court of the women. Ten feet higher than the court of the women was the court of Israel. Three feet higher than that was the court of the Pharisees, or I'm sorry, the priests. And then the innermost court, what we commonly refer to as the Holy of Holies, that was eight feet higher. All in all, the Holy of Holies was 28 feet higher than the outer court where the Gentiles were. It's only entered once, one day a year, and that was only by the high priest. That particular day, as we know it today, is called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. It was the most holy day of the year for the Israelites. Now, the time of our text, at the time that this was, was given to us, or at least it was written about, not given to us, but written about, it had only been, uh, it had been 46 years since they started working on the temple, but they had not totally completed it yet. In fact, the temple really wasn't completely uh, completed until 65 A.D. Anybody know what happened five years later? 
Yes, the Romans came in and they destroyed it, just as Jesus had predicted would happen. Well, the first problem that we see here is what they were doing at the temple. They were selling animals for sacrifice, which in itself is not a bad thing. It would have been inconvenient. It would have been difficult to drag an animal from far away to be sacrificed. So that's what they were doing. Also, what, what another problem they would have had is what if you brought your animal and the priest rejected it? I mean, in other words, it's not, it's not good enough in his mind. You see, the priest had the power to reject your animal. That's why it made it so convenient for them to get in cahoots with the people that were selling them. So they would get a kickback on this. You could not bring your own animal many times because they would just reject it. Think of going into Rio 10 theaters with an ice chest full of sandwiches and drinks. You will not be allowed to go in there with your ice chest full of food and drinks. Do you know why? Because they make their money off $5 popcorn. That's where, that's where movie theaters make their money. And that's where they were making their money, off the kickbacks from these sacrifice, sacrificed animals. Their priests also guaranteed that their animals were acceptable, according to their standards. Their animals were supposedly good enough. They were also doing something else that they shouldn't have been doing. They were charging exorbitant prices for these animals. Now, if you were really poor, the only kind of animal you could afford would probably be like a dove. And so what was happening is here, or I should say a pigeon, a dove or a pigeon, they were charging $5 for a 25-cent pigeon. Five dollars? Wait a minute, that's way too much. I never pay that much. Well, if you want one of ours, you've got to pay five dollars. So they were taking advantage of these poor people that couldn't afford any more. So the, here it is, the vendor is making the profit. Then he pays a percentage to the priest. Do you see what's happening here? They found a way to make money off of God and the, and the, the people of God. Let me say it another way. They were using God, they were using religion, and they were, they were using worship for personal gain. Do you know of anything like that that's going on today in 2017? It's, it's rampant. People are taking advantage of Christians for their own personal gain. Nothing has changed. Imagine someone joining a large church for the purpose of conducting business and getting new clients. You, if you don't think that happens, you, you need to get out more. Because it has happened, and it is happening. Think of how many things are done in the name of God and religion and the church. Worship for personal financial gain. Apparently this practice had been going on for years, and by this time it was accepted. It was the normal thing. It was a great deal for everyone. They were all making money. They, oh, we can't wait till the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We could really start making some big bucks. It was like, it was so convenient. It was like a drive-through religion. 
You know, it's like you just drive up with your car, you roll your window down, they send out the little box, and you they give you a prayer card, you repeat a few prayers, you put your tip in there, and you send it back, and you drive off, and you say, that's done. They were also exchanging money and making a huge profit. They were exchanging the money that they were bringing from other countries and other parts of the world, Gentile money, uh, pagan money, Greek money, Roman money, because you could not do your sacrifice without giving actual shekels. It cost a half shekel to get into the temple, and they were having to exchange their money. It's like if you were to, to take a flight over to Barcelona, Spain, for example. You can't use dollar bills over there. Well, you can, but you, they won't go very far. You have to exchange them for euros. Or if you go to England, you have to exchange them for pounds. They were exchanging at a ridiculously large rate of interest. It was a great racket. It was a great racket. It was based on convenience and greed. So the problem, the first problem, was what they were doing. But the second problem was where they were doing it. You see, this is where it gets a little tricky. Look at verse 14. It just leaves this little detail in there. What does it say? Where were they doing it? In the temple. In the temple. This is where they were carrying on these transactions. So you see, originally these transactions were done far away from the temple. But I wonder if each, with each, each passing year that it just got a little bit closer and a little bit closer and a little bit closer. And someone probably said, well, we just put it in the outer court of the Gentiles. They don't count anyway. So eventually that's where it probably went. It made perfect sense. It was convenient. It was logical. Let's just do it. It's so easy for us to do it that way. That was the second problem, where they were doing it. The first problem is what they were doing, and the second problem was where they were doing it. Then we find the passion. We find the passion of Christ, verses 15, 16, and 17. When Jesus sees all of this going on, he pretty much goes ballistic. But not immediately. He takes time to make a hand-woven whip. And he probably uses the leather straps they were using to tie up the animals for sacrifice. So I'm imagining him sitting there watching what's going on, seeing what's going on, hearing what's going on, making these cords into a whip so that he can drive out these money changers and these people that were abusing the temple. This took time. I'm thinking that during that time he was brewing. I think he was brewing. And it was a time for anger for him. Jesus' righteous anger overcame him with emotion. He was overcome with it. Can you hear him? Can you hear him say, Stop this! No more! Get out of my Father's house! In Mark 11, chapter 17, Jesus says this. He quotes Isaiah 56, 7. He says, it is not, it is, is it not written, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations? Did you hear that? For all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. Here in John chapter 2, verse 16, he says, take these things away. 
Stop making my father's house a place of business. Jesus was angry and he was filled with passion. But I believe he was also broken hearted. I believe what he was broken hearted about was that these people weren't. They weren't broken hearted. They should have been. So why weren't they broken hearted just like Jesus was? They knew they were dishonoring God. They weren't idiots. They weren't blind to what they were doing. They knew what they were doing was wrong and sinful. They knew where they were doing it was wrong and sinful. They just didn't care. They put God on the back burner and they didn't care anymore. They were going to do it their way because there was a lot of money to be made. It was all about their love of money and making a profit. There was money to be made and they put greed before God. Undoubtedly, there was little, if any, prayer and meditation going on, which is what the temple was built for. The outer court was not being used for what it was intended. Here we see Christ's passion and hatred for sin revealed in his earthly ministry, his early ministry. They were dishonoring God by demonstrating their sin and their love for greed and profit. Now, at this point in the story, I find myself becoming very critical of these people. And I started asking myself, how could they possibly do that in this holiest of all places? How could they put greed and profit before the Lord? How was this even possible? Well, as I thought about it, (laughs) I began to ask myself uh, some very tough questions about my own life. And I started asking myself these questions. Do I put the things of this world before the Lord? Do I put the things of this world before prayer? Do I put the things of this world before time in God's word? Am I guilty of making a spiritual decisions based on convenience? Am I guilty of making spiritual decisions based on what I want to do? Sadly, the answer was yes. So I started to realize that I was no different than these people are or were. You see, the American culture is all about convenience. Uh, That's why we have convenience stores. Everything is convenient. If Jesus gets angry and is passionate about hating sin, shouldn't we be? We are no different. But as Christians, shouldn't we be? If we're going to be angry about sin, shouldn't we begin by looking within ourselves first? To actually look in the mirror to see how we walk and how we talk, how we treat other people, how we treat our neighbor, neighbors, how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ, how we treat our spouses, our husbands, our children, our father. Isn't that important? Is there any room for improvement in these areas? There's always room for improvement. These are hard questions, but I think they're worthy of consideration. Now, in verse 18, we see the pushback. Here come the religious people. Here come the Jewish leaders. This is the pushback. So we have the the problem here. And uh, 
It's uh, followed by the pushback. The Jews' first concern was not with what Jesus did. There's no mention of that. They didn't go up to him and say, why did you do that? What are you doing? That wasn't their concern. The Jews' first concern was not with why they did it, why he did it, or what he did. They weren't even saying he did anything wrong. They never accused him of doing anything wrong. At least as far as turning over the tables of the money changers was concerned. They were not concerned with that. They were only concerned with one thing. And their question is reveals their heart. By whose authority do you do this? We're not saying what you did was wrong or why you did it. We're just saying, who gave you the authority to do this? That was their question. They wanted to see a sign. We need to see a sign to make sure that you have the authority to do this. They wanted to see his badge of authority. Verse 18. What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? You see, the Jews were all about power and authority, weren't they? I mean, they were all about power and authority. Can't you just hear them? Can't you just hear what they were saying to him at that time? Do you, have, do you have any idea who we are? We're the religious leaders of the Jewish people. You have no authority to do that. Who do you think you are? And that was their attitude toward Jesus. You're going to have to show us some kind of a sign, some kind of a badge of authority. You can't just come in here and start doing that. Now, why wouldn't the Jews be concerned with what and why he did what he did. They didn't say, hey, what's wrong with you? Are you crazy? Why would you do that? Why wasn't their first question, why did you do that? Why wasn't that their first question? Well, I'll tell you the answer, why? Because they already knew why. They knew they were out of the will of God. They knew that they were doing wrong and sinful things. They knew better, but they did it anyway. They just didn't care. It's like when a pastor gets up and preaches against sin and someone says, who gives him the right to talk to me like that? Who made, who made what he says so righteous? Who gives him the authority to tell me what I should and shouldn't do? Who gave him the power to know what's right and what's wrong? Well, here it is right here, brother. It's right here. This is what's right and this is what's wrong. And this is where we get our marching orders from. The Word of God. I heard three amens. It's true. People will sit and listen to someone preach the Word of God and preach on sin, and then will say, well, who gives him the right to talk to me like that? Well, God does, right here. If you're a Christian, this is what we believe. This is our foundation for everything that we, we do and say in this life. The Jews said, you need to show us a, with a sign that you have the authority to do what you did. Well, then comes the promise. Verses 19, 20, and 21. So Jesus looks at them and he says, you want to see a sign? I'll show you a sign. Destroy this temple and in three days, in three days, I will raise it up. Their response demonstrated their lack of spiritual perception. 
They said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? I think they began to snicker. I think they began to chuckle among themselves. I think they began to dismiss him and just kind of wagged their heads at him and said, Man, you're worthless, and just walked away. I think they just denied him right there. Because what he was talking about was the temple of his body. They totally misunderstood because they were thinking naturally and not spiritually. Just like the next chapter in the Gospel of John with Nicodemus. How can a man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? He can't. He's talking spiritually here, not naturally. It's the perfect example of a natural man trying to understand spiritual things. It just doesn't work that way. This is a spiritual book. You can't understand this with a natural mind. God gives us the Holy Spirit to help us understand this book. The natural mind can't grasp it. The Bible tells us that. Then comes the proof. Verse 22. Three years later, Jesus fulfills his promise. Yes, the temple of his body was destroyed, but three days later, he was resurrected. God raised his body from the grave. We call it the resurrection. We celebrate Easter. It's a big event. It's pretty major for we who are Christians. Without the fulfilled promise of this resurrection, we might as well all go back home and go to bed. You know why I say that? Look in your Bibles at at First Corinthians chapter fifteen. I want to I want you to see this as I read it. That's why this is so important. The resurrection of Christ is so important. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Did you hear that? Your faith is worthless if he hasn't been resurrected. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life, only we are of all men most to be pitied. Everything that we believe is hinged on the fact that Jesus Christ was resurrected the third day. That's why Easter is such a big deal for us. Jesus was in fact crucified, he was buried, he was resurrected, he sits at the right hand of God the Father. Historical accounts tell us that Christ, after Christ's resurrection, he was seen by and appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, then to five hundred people at one time, then to James, the brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles, and finally to Paul. He was seen. 
a time for anger. Jesus was angry with these people because of what and where they were doing what they were doing. They were making a profit off of other people in the wrong place. They shouldn't have been doing that in that place. He was angry because they were using God and religion and worship to make a profit. He was angry because they were dishonoring the temple. Before we get angry at anyone or anything, before we get critical of anyone or anything, I would pray that we would start looking deep within our own selves to make sure that we're right with God. Let's start by looking deep within ourselves as Christians, as followers of Christ today. We're going to be having communion now, and this message flows right into what I wanted to say about communion. So, if you'll bear with me, I'd like to tell you a little story. I don't know how many of you have ever heard the name or know who Edward Everett was. But he's a very famous man, or was a very famous man, back in the 1800s. He was an amazing orator. This guy could talk. Uh, he would make me sound like a two-year-old, which is probably not hard to do. But he was a great orator. And he was hired in 1863 to be the main speaker after a major battle had been fought in the Civil War in a small town of Pennsylvania. The city fathers had searched the land and found that this man, this Edward Everett, was just amazing, and they raised the money to pay him to speak. And on November the 19th, uh, that day was selected as the day of this dedication of this cemetery after the war had been fought, the battle had been fought in this small town in Pennsylvania. One author described it this way. An oration was an oration in those days, and it had to have a certain style to it. Classical allusions, a leisurely approach to the subject matter, a carefully phrased recital of the background and history of the occasion. The whole thing working up to a conclusion which would sum up everything in memorable sentences. Everett began with Pericles in ancient Greece and slowly wound his way through Ezekiel's Valley of the Dry Bones. You remember that story? On to modern times. The applause at the end of his speech indicated it was well received. The city fathers had uh, received their money's worth. Edward Everett was indeed the master orator as as advertised. Sitting down, Everett handed matters back to the master of ceremonies, who announced at that time that the President of the United States, on hand as befitted such an occasion, had a few words as well. The thin form of Abraham Lincoln walked to the podium, spread out two sheets of paper, and began four score and seven years ago. We all know that speech as the Gettysburg Address. Of course we know that. Edward Everett had spoken 13,000 words and had spoken for two hours. 
Abraham Lincoln only spoke 272 words. The only reason anyone remembers anything at all about Everett's speech that day is because of the remarks by Lincoln. His remarks turned a cemetery dedication at Gettysburg into history. After I read that, I got to thinking about communion in our church. Sometimes I think our worship is like that event. This is what I mean. We spend a fair amount of time, and we should, singing. We spend an even greater amount of time hearing from God's Word, and of course we should. But when we have communion at the end of the service, it almost seems like an afterthought. Comparatively speaking, a visitor might even assume it to be a trivial event or a trivial activity. Now, we may forget the names of the songs that we sang. We may forget the points of the sermon that was given. But we must never forget that Jesus did an amazing thing for us on the cross of of Calvary. Communion is not an afterthought. It's not something we do to tag on the end of a service. It is the center of worship. It commemorates what Jesus did for you and for me. Communion, just like the Gettysburg Address, needs no great span of time. Its impact is greatly increased by its brevity. In it, God does what? He speaks to our hearts, encouraging us to repentance, to remember what he's done for us. And to give us hope. The question is, are we listening? Singing is wonderful. Preaching is appropriate and certainly needed. But only the sacrifice of Jesus can bring salvation. If you're a visitor here today with us, I want to let you know about how we do communion. And as our men prepare to serve communion... I want to say that we serve an open communion, which means that if you know the Lord as your personal Savior, we invite you to partake of the communion service with us, with the elements. Also, I want to say that when we do the elements, we all take them at the same time together. So as our men come forward, would you pray with me before we take communion? Lord of heaven and earth, at this very moment in time, our attention as your children is directed toward remembering your sacrifice for purchasing our salvation. The body you gave, the blood you spill for our eternal benefit will never, never be forgotten. Thank you. We pray that you will reveal any sin to us that needs to be forgiven. Any unkind words spoken in haste to a friend, a loved one, or even a stranger. We ask that you cleanse us from any spirit of criticism directed at others as well. Our desire today is to please you in all we say and all we do. So that this time, Father, may we be right with you and right with one another. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to take inventory of our lives to lay before you all of our concerns and burdens that would hinder our daily walk. As we partake of the bread which represents your body and the juice which represents your blood, 
We give honor and glory to the remembrance of what you did on that faithful day so many years ago. We pray these things in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.